This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Uh, this is your host, Mor- Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I have two very special guests. And I'm really excited uh, to be talking to them about their wonderful book. The book we're going to talk about is called After Darwin, Literature, Theory, and Criticism in 21st Century. Uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Um, it's an edited collection of essays, and I've got uh, Professor Devin Griffith, who is a professor of English at the University of Su- Southern California, and also Professor Diana Krizel, who is a professor of English at the University of Mississippi, uh, with us. Devin and Diana, welcome to New Books Network. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Happy to be here. Glad to be here. Right. Uh, before we start talking about the book, can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your field of expertise, and then maybe you can tell us why you decided to write a book called After Darwin. Uh, Devin, maybe we should start with you. Um, Sure. Uh, So my original background was in molecular biology. I worked in a lab for a while. Um, I was on a big research project, um, but got burned out on lab work, decided I didn't really like being in the lab, you know, 60 hours a week, and I really wanted more idea, time to think about ideas. Um, and gravitated towards an English PhD after that. When I got to grad school, I realized I could I didn't have to leave science behind. I could work on the history and philosophy of science alongside literature and sort of see how they interact. There was somebody named George Levine. That was sort of one of his big projects over the course of his career that I was able to work with at Rutgers. Um, so that's sort of how I threaded my way into this and sort of the question of sort of Darwin and literary studies. And I'm excited to talk to you about it um, and maybe... Uh, I uh, Deanna can introduce herself a little bit, and then we can talk about where the book came from. Great. Thanks, Devin. Um, yes, I'm Deanna Kreisel. Um, I am not a scientist and have zero science background, pretty much. I came at this uh, comment from a different angle. I got interested in environmental humanities and eco-criticism about 10 years ago. We were just talking about how long it's been uh, since we started working together and and came to Darwin that way. So, and actually, because we'd already done some editing together. So I'm not as much of a Darwin expert as Devin, but I am an environmental humanities person, eco-critic, um, interested in science, it, you know, in that regard from from that angle. So That's very exciting because yeah. I guess before uh, we recorded this interview, I mentioned that I studied environmental humanities as a PhD mm-hmm. student and I came to know 
Darwin and uh, Darwin, the the uh, literary Darwinism, let's say, man, sign more more scientific approach to literature towards Darwin. And as I said to you, uh, my friend was studying evolutionary psychology. We had very little in common, so I'm interested to know how a scientist and literary scholar work together to write this book. So, can you tell us uh, about the idea of this book and? Um, how 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 was it to, to approach literature from maybe uh, Devin you from a more scientific background and Diana from a literary background? Yeah, um, I think so. The original idea for this project was uh, a, a series of talks given on panels at a meeting of North Atlantic Victorian Studies, actually in Florence, Italy, uh, a long time ago, um, and I was involved with that. And coming out of that, we sort of wondered if we could sort of gather some of these papers and put them together as a collection. Um, that original impulse kind of foundered. Um, but along the way, I met Deanna and I started collaborating with her in this sort of working group that works on the question of sort of history of um, um, cultures of ecology, particularly in the context of Britain, but more broadly. Um, and so through this workshop, as we sort of started asking the question about how do we think about the history of the environment? How does it intersect with aesthetic objects? Um, we became close collaborators. We did some sort of work together. And so um, when uh, somebody came to me and asked if we could revive this sort of uh, project on the relationship between Darwin, philosophy, and literature, I asked Deanna, she'd be interested in sort of pursuing it with me. And fortunately, uh, Deanna had been sort of gravitating towards Darwin, along with obviously environmental studies for a while. Dee? Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Um, yeah, I... I... I have to say, I came on board. I I came for Devin, and I stayed for the Darwin. <laughs> I, um, I was we had we had done an edited journal uh, issue together called Open Ecologies, uh, which was a special issue of Victorian literature and culture about a year before, and we really enjoyed working together. And it was a really successful project. And so when Devin said, "Hey, I'm doing this after Darwin thing. Would you like to come on board as a co-editor?" I said, "Sure. Let's do another editing project together." And that's how that part came about. But it it was really fun and intellectually really challenging, but also extremely enlightening for me. I mean, I I feel like I learned a lot just doing this editing project. Mm. Yeah, I think I think when you're collaborating, one plus one, the sum of one plus one is a lot bigger than two. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can find somebody to work with who you really enjoy and is a good friend, it's just like one of the great pleasures of my career is have, to have that opportunity. It's been really great. Yeah, I agree. Well, sounds good. I will ask you after the end. I mean, at the end of the interview, if there's any other project you're working on, but. Uh... Let's talk about about this book a little bit. So after Darwin, so Cambridge has a series of books after Darwin, after Marx, after Said. Uh, um, there are a lot of companions or handbooks to Darwin, and more recent in the past ten years, maybe there have been a lot of books on Darwin and literature as well. So I'm interested to know what is particularly different about this book. Well, um, I'll, I guess I'll field this one. I we really take the after in the title quite seriously. So as you said, there's a, this is part of a series from Cambridge of after important thinkers. Um, and so it, it's not a guidebook or a handbook to Darwin in the same way as the other books that you've mentioned, but rather it's it's really a series of provocations, um, engagements, interventions. It's a collection of essays that addresses the legacy of Darwinian thought in a variety of of humanities disciplines, right? So um, 
they sort of think about the ways in which Darwinian thought has been taken up in diverse ways, but also suggest influences in the future. So we have essays on feminist theory, disability studies, race studies, sound studies. So there's all different kinds of humanities disciplines, uh, philosophy, of course, as well. Uh, and, and the authors are really thinking about how to push forward, right? How to think of the about the ways in which Darwinian thought has been taken up. Not necessarily in the present, because some of the essays are talking about the ways in which Darwinian thought influenced Darwin's contemporaries or people, thinkers in the 19th century, early 20th century. But the after is really the, the kind of key part there. So it's not really a volume of essays explicating Darwin as much as it is a volume of essays engaging with Darwin. And, and I must say that in a number of the articles that I read in this book, I actually did learn a lot about Darwin myself, and it did correct some misconceptions I had about mm. uh, Darwinism. <laughs> uh, but uh, since you're both uh, literary scholars, just for the uninitiated, can you tell us briefly what is literary Darwinism and how did Darwin become popular with literary scholars? Because that's maybe the last thing somebody would think about, how did Darwin become popular with uh, in, in literature departments. Uh, so Devin, you're on mute. Thank you. I think our collection enters that question from a slightly different angle than you might expect. Um, because really to think about the intersection between literature and Darwin, there's sort of two disparate movements in literary studies. Um, on the one hand, there's uh, what's often called literary Darwinism. Uh, writers like Brian Boyd or Joseph Carroll, Dennis Sutton have been thinking about how we can analyze the, how literature functions through a Darwinian lens. And so the, their basic approach, and it has a relationship to sociobiology, um, sociobiology and evolutionary psychology is to take a certain methods, which they take to be sort of Darwinian methods of analysis and think about, for instance, how does that explain the joke in Lewis Carroll, right? How does it explain how a romance plot functions in, in, in its character system? Um, I, by contrast, uh, and, and, and Deanna and this collection really come out of sort of a different orientation. Um, so nobody in this particular, this collection, I think is a sort of classic literary Darwinist, although we did have somebody who was involved with the project early on, who wasn't able to sort of, um, um get their sort of chapter in on time. I feel, feel like that's actually one of the holes in the collection is not to have a sort of strictly literary Darwinist chapter, but, um, we basically argue that Darwin's impact Act extends well beyond both within the sciences and in the humanities any sort of uh, single set of techniques or philosophies. In particular, I think Darwin's impact as a thinker and as a philosopher is much larger than the theory of natural selection. And so, one of the things that we sort of uh, outline at the beginning of the of the collection is sort of how to think of him as a philosopher and a theorist of culture as well as a biologist. Um, and one of the sort of critiques that I would I would offer to literary Darwinists, I'm not the only one is that often to sort of reify some small set of, of Darwin's methods, maybe overlook some of the wider um, breadth of this thinking, particularly when you think about literature, because the sort of timescales along which literature changes don't seem to map cleanly to, I think, the timescales on which things like bio, um, biological entities evolve or change. And also, I think some of the ways in which culture operates don't sort of map cleanly into sort of the kind of categories that Darwin was initially imagining. Conversely, He's interested in things like aesthetics and beauty and um, and diversity in ways that I don't see always reflected in um, literary Darwinist approaches. Is it sort of an attempt to make, because, you know, with the rise of more um, interdisciplinary approaches to literature, would you say that it's an attempt to make literature more scientific or literary criticism more scientific? 
I I would say the short answer is no. <laughs> if I mean, it depends on what you mean by scientific, of course, right? Mm -hmm. But if by scientific we mean something like more quantitative or more positivist, then then no. I mean, obviously there are kind of attempts and movements and interest in quantifying literature, mm -hmm. things like large language models or, you know, d digital humanities, distant reading, all those kinds of approaches. That's not really what we're doing in this volume. Um, that said, I mean, the contributors here are really interested in that long history of the interplay between science and literature. And we do talk about that in the introduction as mm -hmm. well. Um, we mentioned that we take as a point of departure Gillian Beer and George Levine, um, who you know wrote uh, Darwin's plots and, and George Levine wrote a lot of, about Darwin and, and novelists. Uh, stretching back to now 30, 40 years ago, I think Darwin's plots, shockingly, is like 40 years old now, which is kind of incredible mm -hmm. to me. But um, and of course, the you know, what they did in in that work that was sort of revolutionary at the time was to argue that there's a two way interplay between literature and science, that the novelists are being influenced by Darwinian thought and, of course, are taking up those models and modes of thinking about the scale of the human life, et cetera. Um, that's a phrase from Gillian Beer. But but conversely, right, novelistic plot is also influencing science and influencing the way that Darwin is thinking as well. I mean, he did read widely. He was a voracious reader, loved Austin, loved other, you know, um, authors, contemporary authors. Um, so it, it really is kind of thinking about that mutual influence. So that's sort of straying from the original question a little bit. But uh, I would say we're not looking to be where I'm I personally anyway, maybe Devin has a different answer to this, but I personally am not interested in trying to make literary study more scientific in that reductionist way, right? But rather thinking about the ways in which they're mutually influencing, mutually constitutive, and mutually that's a two way conversation. Um, oh, you're muted still, Devin. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. That's really well put, Dee. I think that um, one way to think about it is if literary Darwinism tries to take scientific methods and apply it to literary study, um, this other sort of approach to Darwin we're talking about takes sort of literary, historical, and philosophical methods and applies it to thinking about the history and practice of science, right? Mm -hmm. So how is it that the scientific imagination is structured by the sort of conceptual and imaginative protocols that they drive from literature? Mm -hmm. um, and so it is sort of completing the circuit, doing something more two-way. I mean, one of the things that Beer and Levine were responding to was an earlier generation of, of scholars uh, sort of... Uh, who were thinking about the history of ideas, uh, figures like A.O. Lovejoy, mm. who, under, who really were focused on the question of how scientific practice shaped ideas in the wider culture. And their argument was, well, let's flip that question around and ask how literature affects science. And Darwin ends up being a really wonderful example of this, precisely because his work is so deeply 
imaginative and engaging and so wide ranging in both the sort of attempt to grasp the natural world and what he observes, but also communicate in an effective way to his readers. Uh, in the introduction of your book, you, 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 you talk about how the idea of struggle for existence is often misunderstood. So how did Darwin originally look at it and how is it, or why is it that it's generally misunderstood by people? I'd be happy to take this one. Um, so it turns out struggle for existence isn't a, isn't a term that he coined. Actually, Charles Lyell, the, geolo the ge geologist who was one of Darwin's mentors and also uh, sort of a founder of, of modern geology, coined this phrase in, in precisely the sort of sense we usually take it to mean. He was looking at the way in which creatures struggle in the world against each other, and he was starting to think already about what the consequences were for those creatures over the long run. Um, what's really important, though, in the case of Darwin is when Darwin first introduces that term in The Origin of Species, he initially says one will tend to think of this in the sense of two creatures struggling. But he says more basically, we should imagine it rather as the struggle for all life simply to exist. And the example he gives, which is really telling, is the example of a plant struggling to survive on the edge of a desert. What he really wanted to emphasize is even though we're always focused on these narratives of competition, more basically, life itself struggles to hang on in the face of the sort of remorselessness of wider natural systems. You know, he's writing really right at the cusp of people understanding what the implications of entropy and thermodynamics are, something that Darwin himself, I don't think, ever really conceptualized or understood. But I think he recognized that essentially, in a widest sphere, the natural world is not hospitable to life. And so the ability to, for life to hang on and proceed and thrive, that's the more basic boundary condition for life itself. And within that wider boundary condition, individual struggles between organisms are, are one case. But he was also equally focused. And I would say in the second half of his career, far more focused on the question of cooperation and uh, uh, mutual evolution between things like mm -hmm. pollinators and flowers. And I'd be able to say more about that. But I think missing that side of Darwin's thought and that sort of turn towards ecology and interrelation and a form of cooperation is some, one of the great sort of injustices done to his legacy in, in a lot of sort of popular science, even I think sometimes by some scientists. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll go back to what Diana said earlier. She talked about how Darwin was an avid reader himself and he loved literature. And I could be wrong, but I read somewhere that he didn't like Shakespeare very much. <laughs> I could be wrong, but that's what I read. I read a quote from him anyhow. Uh, so Darwin also, not only Darwin, but I guess a lot of scientists at that time, but let's talk about Darwin. He also used this literary style to convey his ideas. So how did he consider fiction? What did he think of fiction? Was it antithesis to, to, to fact or science? Well, about the literary style, first of all, I mean, I think this is something that is very striking to people, maybe if they haven't actually read Darwin himself, right? I mean, a lot of people know about Darwin's ideas or they come to them second or third hand or through summaries or whatever. Uh, when you actually read Darwin, it's it's surprising, I think, to a 21st century reader expecting or, you know, who has a kind of set of expectations of what scientific writing is like. Um, Darwin's re writing is really literary and creative, right? He, I mean, he uses... Uh, storytelling 
in order to kind of convey some of the information that would it's would be difficult, I think, for his readers to capture otherwise. So, for example, you know, these kind of vast timescales that he's talking about in that Lyellian geology sense, right, of like trying to kind of imaginatively sketch out for his readers what those kinds of timescales are like, or fleshing out where there's gaps or fissures in um, in the historical record, the fossil record, et cetera. He, you know, he fills those in, he fills in those ideas with a kind of creative style. Um, his writing is full of literary devices. Um, he uses like sophisticated fictional techniques. He described to describe discoveries. He invites the reader to draw inferences from his descriptions of the natural world, right? Um, and I think it's also important to remember too that there didn't used to be such a disciplinary divide between science and humanities. Um, Darwin was not you know, he doesn't have a PhD in biology, right? He was trained as a doctor, sort of. I don't think he actually even finished his medical degree, right? Or maybe he did, but he never no. really did anything with it now. And, you know, he just hops on a boat and decides, I guess I'll just go be a naturalist. This is one of my favorite things about 19th century scientists is that, you know, they just wake up one morning and decide, I'm a cell biologist. I'm going to go get some vials and, and start collecting stuff. And lo and behold, they're a cell biologist. That's, you know, basically the story of George Henry Lewis, who's George Eliot's partner. Um, so I think, you know, he's a, a, a passionate amateur who becomes an extraordinarily important scientific thinker. And I think that's also reflected in his writing as well. His writing is actually really beautiful. Um, you know, as literary scholars, I think one of the reasons that we appreciate him and are attracted to him is because he is a good writer. I actually, uh, in anticipation here, I actually went and uh, looked up again the ending of The Origin of Species. It's a very mm. famous quotation about the Tangled Bank. And so I'm just going to read a little bit here. Um, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone circling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. I mean, that's just lovely, right? I mean, I think it's, you know, a, a testament to that kind of education, right? That kind of, you know, all around sort of humanist slash scientific education where there wasn't such a division between the two and there wasn't appreciation mm. for the literary. Um, and I think we really see that in his writing. Mm. Uh, how, how about philosophy? There's, it's impossible right, to read the history of philosophy without coming across the name of uh, Darwin. Did he consider himself a philosopher or more an empiricist? Or why is it that his works have been more associated? I mean, have also been widely discussed in philosophy as well. That's a great question. Um, I mean, the, the short answer to that is yes, Darwin was a philosopher and he would absolutely hate it uh, if we called him so. Um, he, um, I think, really went out of his way to avoid being perceived as a philosopher he was writing in a time when there had been a really hard turn towards a more imp empirical, increasingly professional Baconian scientific method. Everything was supposed to be inductive rather than deductive. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons why it took him about almost 20 years to sort of work upon the basic theory and then finally publish The Origin of Species, and he would have taken far longer if he wasn't anticipated by Alfred Russell Wallace, is simply that he wanted to assemble enough facts and observations through this wide network of correspondence, that it didn't look like a theory anymore at some basic level, or at least it didn't look so speculative. 
there are lots of good reasons for that. Um, one of the most important, I think, is his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who was a major philosopher and poet and a medical scientist. And his grandfather felt uh, no um, compunction at all about publishing wildly speculative theories at the close of the 18th century. And when, with a sort of conservative turn in science and in politics and in culture, his grandfather was sort of excoriated for his sort of radical thought, political thought, as well as philosophical ideas. Darwin's entire family, I think, took a lesson, which is you can't be that kind of thinker, at least not publicly. That said, you know, when you go look at Darwin's um, journals or when you look at his letters, you see how sort of wildly fanciful and speculative he actually was. Um, so, you know, you can, the Darwin Correspondence Project has a lot of their stuff already online. So you can sort of go, go, look through his letters. There's a wonderful uh, website called Darwin Online that, that sort of has his journals all digitized. So you can like look through his, his uh, notebooks as he's sort of working on evolution. And it's really, really fun to watch him speculate, imagine, and theorize. He called this building castles in the air, a phrase that pops up all the time. So he understood himself, I think, as a theorist, as a speculator. He was afraid of the term philosopher, right? Um, but ultimately, uh, the, one of the things I'm really excited about our collection getting across is the sort of philosophical um, underpinnings of the ideas he's working with are really profound, and we're still coming to terms with them today. And you can see that and sort of track it out in terms of his impact on different philosophers, right? So one of the points we make is figures like Nietzsche or Whitehead or Freud, all of them understood themselves as working in one way or another in the sort of shadow of Darwin and Darwinian philosophy, whether it comes to thinking about the evolution function of the mind or thinking about uh, what's called process uh, philosophy, which is sort of thinking about the sort of processual nature of both living creatures and sort of the wider natural world. I think he posed a lot of provocations to philosophy that we're really still trying to deal with. And I think at some level, he's going to stay for a long time and continue to be this engine of philosophical ideas, precisely because he was confronting something so radically new and challenging that, that you know, philosophy and humanists in general are still trying to wrap our heads around it. Yeah, I just jump in really quickly and say, I think this is a really huge topic, but I just what you mentioned, Devin, the part about Darwin's own anxieties about how he's being perceived as a scientific thinker. It's really interesting to me to think about how he's really kind of at this fulcrum point in the 19th century of that shift from mm -hmm. the amateur, grandiose speculator, right, to that highland. We see this in political economy, too, with the shift from political economy to economics, with the rise of the marginal utility theory and calculus and all that good stuff. That's actually my specialty. Original specialty is, is political economy and economics um, in the novel. And mm. he's really just kind of right there. So you can see he has kind of one foot on each sand dune, right, where it's like, you know, he has this kind of speculative philosophical tradition that he's working in, but also that sort of anxiety almost about being perceived as a professional, just as those shifts are taking place and professionalization is happening in the university, et cetera. So he's a really interesting figure for that reason, too. Yeah, I, I love that, Dee, um, because the sort of relation between economy and uh, ecology and ecosystem mm -hmm. science mm -hmm. remains sort of so important today in terms of thinking. Um, and for me, if I had to put a marker on sort of the, the most important sort of philosophical challenge that he introduced, I think it's the problem of ecology itself, mm -hmm. um, by which I mean up until Darwin, more or less, people believed in some sort of benevolent force or entity out there holding natural systems together, that they were sort of wired providentially to work at some basic level. 
And Darwin stripped away that, that confidence or belief. And the problem that we still wrestle with today is how do we understand the complexity of what we see around us in nature? Also the complexity of human impacts on nature in terms of uh, pollution, global warming, uh, and, and environmental degradation. How do we understand that complexity? Uh, I think one of the things, this sort of gets back to the question of his relationship to literature. One thing I've been thinking about a lot is how when we tell stories, we tend to emphasize conflict. And there aren't a lot of great models for storytelling structures, which are about sort of cooperation, right? Because structures of conflict precipitate sort of crises and resolutions, right? They sort of, at least in the Western tradition, sort of hold together a lot of the components of narrative theory. And as Darwin sort of tried to figure out how does he describe the world around him, I think he was really sensitive to the his tendency to fall into that trap of constantly describing what he was seeing in terms of conflicts between organisms, which is why I think that struggle for existence metaphor is so interesting. I think he saw that beyond these narratives of competition, there's a wider question of interaction and sort of uh, transformation and emergence that there just weren't great models for. And I think that truthfully in biology and modern ecology and evolutionary science, people are still trying to figure out how do we explain the development of these systems, their complex interactions without resorting exclusively to competitive models, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's a problem he really, I think, saw. And he spent the second half of his career trying to figure out. And I think we're very far from really under having a satisfactory answer to it. Mm. Um, what about the role of aesthetics? That's another aspect of his works that you discuss in the book. What is the role of aesthetics in his writing? I'll, I'll take a stab at this, although I know Devin has a lot to say about this as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, most... There's actually been a bunch of interesting work. I mean, I think primarily a first of Elizabeth Gross and other people writing about Darwin's aesthetics in terms of feminist theory and philosophy. But most discussions of Darwin's aesthetics focus on the descent, um, which is where he developed, of course, the theory of sexual selection or mate choice as a crucial piece of, of the evolutionary mechanism, right? So alongside natural selection, there's this other force or this other kind of mode. Um, and what's interesting about sexual selection is that it doesn't privilege fitness or function, right? In fact, quite the opposite, as he makes the point over and over again in laying out his examples of mate choice uh, in, you know, in the animal kingdom, that in fact, often mates are preferred for structures that are, that, that are not only have no particular function or do not aid in fitness, but are even detrimental, right? Um, in some instances. So uh, why is it that you know, creatures have evolved these extraordinarily elaborate forms in order to attract mates that are not actually also um, uh, conducive to fitness. So, and the, I mean, the answer is, I mean, this is like just a very basic cartoony way of putting it, but, you know, this is the aesthetic dimension, right? The aesthetic dimension of sexual selection. And it, it challenges reductionist views of Darwinian thought as deterministic, right? So in other words, we can't... Um, you know, to go back to that kind of literary Darwinist thing that, that Devin was talking about before, if, you know, one of the things that evolutionary psychology uh, kind of gets, a, you know, into a little bit of trouble with, or it's often challenged or pushed back against, is this idea that there's a very deterministic kind of, there's evolutionary changes happened in the past, and that kind of sets the program for the future, right? That like, because, you know, this particular set of behaviors or structures or whatever helped us in, uh, you know, in the Neolithic period or what of the Paleolithic period, that therefore they're kind of, you know, set in stone. Sorry, no pun intended. Set in, set in <laughs> lift. 
<laughs> and um, and you know, there's no room for further development. Or uh, and then, of course, that raises the whole can of worms too about you know acculturation versus um, physical structures, etc. But anyway, to kind of get back to the aesthetics thing, um, that love of excitement or novelty—that's the phrase that Darwin uses—introduces. Um, a kind of, in addition to aesthetic pleasure, a notion of radical uncertainty or even freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the there's a whole kind of huge, uh, like I said, body of work about this that thinks about the, the interplay relationship between, say, feminist theory or even race studies, et cetera, and that aesthetic dimension of Darwin's thought. So that's just a kind of an opening salvo. And I'm sure Devin has more to say about this because I know it's kind of a pet topic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, yeah. It's something I'm totally fascinated by yeah. <laughs> working on currently. But I want to pick it up right where Dee left off there, which is thinking about the relationship between aesthetics and race. Um, within the humanities, in general, I think there's a lot of awareness and sort of focus on studying how do certain sort of aesthetic paradigms privilege certain races over others, or even more specifically, kind of generate racist ideologies and perpetuate them over time. Um, and one of the really interesting accounts that we've received uh, 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 or, or readings of Darwin that, that, that sort of been developed over the last 20, 30 years is an analysis of what he's doing with aesthetics as sort of an anti-racist um, uh, way of, of, of thinking about nature. Um, and so, you know, Kwame Apaya first made this argument. We've got a great chapter by B. Ricardo Brown in our collection where he really lays this out. Um, but what they point out is that in The Descent of Man, Darwin argues that the variety of, of humans' tastes, the sort of the fact that different people like different things is a sort of a window into how uh, we differentiate sort of phenotypically just in terms of how we look. And his argument is it's entirely superficial. In other words, this basic structures that anatomists pay attention to for species differentiation and humans are all the same. So he's very deeply committed to the idea that humans are all the same. We just superficially look different. And he uses aesthetics as a way to explain that um, rather than as a way of arguing that there's some essential nature that distinguishes between the races. Right. So for him, thinking about the variety of people's tastes and how divergent that could be and the directions it could lead is a way to argue against racial essentialism, which I think is sort of important and sort of still an important like uh, um, sort of opening for a way to think about the sort of uh, liberatory potential of an aesthetic theory as over against sort of um, the modern history of racial and racial thinking. Um, and the other direction that I'm really interested in, too, and I think it sort of dovetails with it. And Elizabeth Grosh is somebody who helped me see this, is that Darwin basically starts working on aesthetics right after the origin of species when he turns to the question of flowers. Or actually, he doesn't so much turn to it. He, he's initially trying to write a bigger book on biology and natural selection, but he gets kind of captured by his fascination with flowers and their pollinators. And as he sort of explores sort of how orchids are, for instance, fertilized by wasps and other insects, he realizes that all this beauty in the natural world in terms of floral life isn't meant for us. Up until that point, there'd been a really strong commitment to this notion to the natural world, and, and especially its aesthetic dimension is for human perception de- designed by God. Um, sort of philosophers like Thurl of Shaftesbury 
actually made our ability to sort of appreciate uh, beauty in nature, the thing that made us human and distinct from the animal. And he sort of argued forcefully animals can't appreciate beauty. Darwin sort of demolishes that by arguing that precisely what we respond to in a flower has some relationship to what a wasp sees or what a bee sees. And that sense of appreciation desire that we feel has a kind of connection to what those, those insects feel. He even argues that plants have kind of feelings and sensations too. Even more radically, he's arguing that there is a sort of sensorium for plant life and that that sensorium can be sort of accessed and studied by means of our own um, engagements with those plants and thinking about the way that they sort of engage with the world around, which is a really radical proposal, I think, by itself, because it demolishes a lot of our claims to distinctions between plant and animal life on the one hand, and then between the animal and the human on the other. Um, but the sort of further turn to that, I think, is from that point forward, he's really focused on not just the aesthetic, but other modes, but the aesthetic's a great example. How does that open a window into the way that ecologies interact in general, right? How is it that we can use the sort of aesthetic systems that underwrite nature as a window into what sort of holds these systems together in the face of a sort of unfriendly wider uh, cosmos? Um, and so I think that's a problem he keeps pursuing. And there's, I think, tons of room for us to pursue it today. Um, there's a, uh, an anthropologist named Eduardo Cohn who wrote a book called How Forests Think, which is all about the sort of semiotic systems that hold together nature and sort of our engagement and immersion, immersion in those systems. And I think more fundamentally, Darwin offers a way to think about aesthetics itself, our perception, not just of beauty and pleasure, but also of pain, sort of our sensations and our engagement with the natural world through those sensations as something that pulls us into the natural environment and exposes the way in which we're immersed in it rather than something that sort of makes us uh, unique or, or abstracts us from nature in some basic way. So mm -hmm. I don't know, the, the, uh, the ecological aesthetics, I think, is one way I've been thinking about it. I think that's maybe one of the more important provocations that we're still trying to work through in terms of his thinking. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting just when you're talking, Devin, I just suddenly had a kind of one of those little glimpses of kind of uh, something clicking, right? Where thinking about that kind of, it's almost a paradox between the idea of the aesthetic dimension having a kind of liberatory potential or being a realm of freedom. And at the same time, it also being yet another way in which Darwinian thought decenters the human, right? That like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the flowers are not there for us. We it's 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 completely accidental or contingent that we have, you know, whatever appreciation that we have of them, they're not they're not meant to attract us. They're meant to attract wasps or bees or whatever, right? Um, and so here we are kind of decentered and yet also, you know, having this kind of space of freedom. And it seems like a, a kind of a weird paradox a little bit, but I just suddenly had one of those little epiphanies <laughs> when you were talking. I, I love that, Dee. I would add, I would, I'd like just building off of that, I would say it really focuses on the question of liberation for what and for whom, mm -hmm. right? And, and redefining what we mean by freedom. And I think another way of thinking about the climate crisis at a broad scale and current economic and social crises at another is reevaluating the terms in which freedom have often, has often been understood mm -hmm. and sort of the question of wh what, what sort of liberation looks like and particularly what it would mean to try to uh, liberate uh, parts of nature to some degree, right? But also those who've been subject to the sort of worst... Um, 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 depredations of extractivism and sort of our violent impact on, on populations and on natural systems. So um, I think, you know, there's a whole cluster of, of things here to talk about, but um, I, these are words I'm thinking about, I guess is what I'll say. Uh, you've given us a lot of food for thought, uh, great answers to the questions. And uh, just before we come to the end of this interview, could you 
broadly talk about the structure of the book. The book has three parts and about 15 articles. So can you broadly tell us about the topics and themes that the contributors have covered in this book? Um, yeah, the, the overall structure, it's divided into three parts. Um, and I, I feel like, as with so many edited collections like this, of course, it's a slightly arbitrary uh, division in that some essays could obviously belong in more than one section. But the broad kind of cons uh, uh, sections are environments after Darwin, um, in which we have some essays that talk about, um, should, we, should we list, I can quickly list Jesse Oak Taylor. Yeah. Caroline Hovenek, Miranda Butler, and Alan McDuffie are in that section. And they're all writing um, roughly about uh, environmental humanities issues, animal studies, um, Anthropocene issues, right? Um, and then we've got differences after Darwin and humanism after Darwin. Maybe, Devin, I'll let you talk about um, the, those two sections. Yeah, uh, the second part, uh, differences after Darwin, we've got contributions by Travis Chewing Lau, B. Ricardo Brown, I mentioned him earlier. Uh, Kathleen Fredrickson, uh, Carol Colatrella, and Waichi Demark. And, and sort of, we're really focusing in here on the sort of question of how Darwin changes the understanding of what difference means in ways that sort of challenge uh, racism, certain constructions of disability, uh, certain understandings of, of sex and gender, um, and sort of how also he's played into the history of sort of feminist thought. Um, so it's a really interesting section, I think, talking about uh, sort of the sort of power of his philosophy as a critical philosophy that that um, sort of undermines or challenges certain sort of widely held norms in, in, line, in alignment with a lot of current scholarship. And the last section is on sort of humanism after Darwin, which is kind of a catch-all category, I admit, but there's some really wonderful essays by Ian Duncan, mm -hmm. uh, Patrick Fessenberger, and Nicholas Nodelman, Alexis Harley, Angelique Richardson, and Hans Sothi, thinking about um, how Darwinian theory and writing helps us rethink um, uh, history and philosophy and sort of traditional sort of disciplines of humanist study. Um, there's a really great uh, section here to, to thinking about uh, Darwin and the sublime and uh, also sort of Darwin's relationship to the comparative method and the way that we sort of use analogies today, which I think he's had a really big impact on. Um, and so, and after that final section, we have a beautiful afterward by uh, George Levine, who along with Jillian Beer is one of the great founders of sort of the study of, of Darwin and literature. Um, and he sort of reflects on the collection and also, I think, poignantly reflects on his career, having been sort of working in this area for, at this point, more than 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, we're really, really lucky and happy that he did that for us because it was a it was very gracious of him to <laughs> to to put his golden finger at the end <laughs> of it our was. collection. <laughs> yeah, well, it was funny because I asked I asked George about it. He said, well, I don't know if I'll have anything to add to this. And then, of course, he had a million things to add yeah. <laughs> as insightful as ever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Professor Devin Griffiths and uh, Deanna Crazel, thank you very, very much for your time to talk with us on New Books Network. This is a wonderful book that I strongly recommend our listeners to pick up and read lots of articles on different topics. After Darwin, Literature Theory Criticism in 21st Century, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marteza. This was wonderful. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's really fun.